day, listeners, and welcome back to the second installment of the On the Shoulders of Giants podcast. Firstly, I just wanted to say thank you very much to all the people that asked me when the podcast will be back on air. While taking the summer off was necessary, it does mean a lot to me to know that I do have a genuine following and that it's not just my mom, dad, or siblings that subscribe to the show. The first season of the On the Shoulders of Giants podcast is hard to describe in a few words, but the adjectives that come to mind are awe-inspiring, exhilarating, uplifting, stimulating, thought-provoking, and even at times controversial. Maybe I should just describe it in my native Shona language. That might do it justice. Meaning, it was badass. As I start the second season of the On the Shoulders of Giants podcast, I decided to pay homage to the first season of the show by doing a few reviews of the best clips of the interviews I had. I couldn't fit them all into one show, and so I split them into two shows. Please enjoy the first of two parts of the best of the On the Shoulders of Giants podcast. I'm Tinotenda Charles Rutanira, and this is the podcast On the Shoulders of Giants, where we get to chat with incredibly inspiring people who have broken the status quo or faced down adversity or taken the road less traveled and positively impacted the lives of other people. We get to hear their stories and gain knowledge and insights into how their professional and personal lives mix every day to create lessons and insights for others to follow. Because the only way to really grow is by building on previous discoveries. And only then can we truly see further by standing on the shoulders of giants. I thought it would be fitting to have Ashley to be the very first guest on my show and to tell us her story of how she started off in her 20s with an apartment condo that in less than a decade grew to a million and a half dollar investment property portfolio. At the age of 21, I just became really intrigued by the idea of being able to own a property and pay down my own mortgage instead of helping to pay down my landlord's mortgage. So at the age of 21, I actually got a mortgage and I bought a condo and I arranged it so that I had a roommate in that condo and I paid pretty much as much as I'd pay um, renting a two-bedroom apartment, living in one room and having a roommate. Um, So that kind of is what got me into being interested about real estate. Um, To kind of fast forward a little bit, today what I do professionally is um, I own a property management company where we focus on investment properties, residential properties that we manage for investors. Um, personally, I'm an investor myself, and I also run a real estate sales group called the Investors Realty Group at Preferred Properties, where we help people to buy and sell properties that are specifically designed to work well as an investment. After I bought that condo, I actually got a job as a mortgage lender, and that was never a job I thought that I 
would do. It's not something that I aspired to do. It's just something that I kind of fell into. So that was a huge opportunity for me because it gave me the background and the knowledge to know the details, the insider details of the mortgage lending industry so that I knew exactly what I needed to do to buy properties and continue buying them to build a portfolio. So by having that knowledge and working in that position, um, I knew which programs to target and exactly how much money I needed to save, you know, what my debt to income ratio needed to look like, and what order I should use the programs in, and what programs might work best for each type of property. So in 2009, um, I bought a duplex with an FHA loan, which lets you buy owner-occupied with 3.5% down. Then in 2010, my husband Bruce and I bought our Essex house, and um, our house that I'm sitting in right now has an accessory apartment, and it pays a, you know, a big chunk of our mortgage. From there, this was kind of the biggest um, leap that we had to make. From there, we started buying properties that we were never going to live in, so straight-up investment. Right. When you get to that point, you really have to have a lot more cash available to make the purchase happen. Um, and for us, we ended up moving from conventional mortgages over to the commercial lending side just because it made more sense for our particular situation. Um, so then we bought, um, since then we've bought two properties by ourselves um, as investments, two multifamily properties, and we've done one partnership deal. So kind of going back to that first condo, kind of this idea of, Okay, so sure, I can rent a place, I can pay rent, and help the landlord pay down their mortgage, but that doesn't really help me get anywhere. So the first step was to get my own place. And then the second step, after the first step worked, and I was like, oh, I can do this. I can own property, and I can have a roommate. The next step, logical step for me, was, wow, if this works in one unit, what would and could it look like if I lived in a duplex where I had a roommate on my side and on the other side I had a tenant who, you know, paid the rent. So for me what that looked like was I lived in my duplex for free right. between having the tenant pay and having the neighbors pay. And in a bigger picture sort of situation, you know, if you think about, okay, I own my own house, I'm paying down my own mortgage, that's great. But taking that to the next level, in my mind, is really owning property and getting all the benefits of owning property, you know, principal pay down, appreciation, and tax benefits. But instead of you having to put your own cash in to pay for that property, you have your tenants paying the money into that property. So I guess I came to this idea because... I was just kind of like researching, like thinking about, okay, what am I going to do with my life and how am I going to be able to live in a way that is fulfilling and I'm financially stable and, you know, I don't have to do something that really doesn't make me happy. In closing, I've got a question that I ask all of my guests and it goes like this. If you could travel back in time and have a conversation with a younger version of yourself, what words of wisdom would you say to yourself and why? 
I might start crying. Um, <laughs> <laughs> wow. If I could go back and give myself some words of wisdom, I think that they would be confidence-based and healing-based words um, and statements like, um, Ashley, you are enough, like just as you are. You are amazing, like you have wonderful gifts to share with the world. Um, because to be honest, I believe that everybody has wonderful gifts to share with the world and sometimes how we're raised doesn't give us that confidence that we are special and unique and we're here for a reason. My guest is Marky Reed, president and co-founder of Korea Networks, a leadership organizational, and career development company based right here in Vermont. Marky Reed has 25 years' experience in coaching and training groups and individuals in developing and implementing sustainable leadership and professional development programs. I provide individual assistance to people who are in some kind of transition. So they might be wondering what's next step in their current career. They might be wanting to change their career entirely. Some people never really had a career, and they still need to figure that out. And I also work with a lot of entrepreneurs who are either launching an idea or trying to reframe a current business in some way. I started out as a journalist and was very happy and, and had some success in that field. And I, and I quickly realized that I wanted to engage with people in a, in a deeper way than I could as a journalist. As a journalist, you're always on the outside kind of observing. And um, I really stumbled into being a coach because I didn't, I didn't even know it existed. Like, no, you know, nobody, nobody says, you know, go, why don't you go be a coach? Because, in fact, the whole field of coaching hadn't really developed at that time as a distinct uh, uh, certification at the time. So I was looking for the next thing and um, started writing resumes and getting and realizing that uh, listening to people's career stories was fascinating to me. And I started realizing that those um, those stories were a lot like writing articles. And um, then when people started asking me about uh, you know what do I do with a cover letter and how do I interview I I found myself having some suggestions that were very practical and helpful and then I continued to do more uh, professional development in that field so that I would be able to really uh, be able to feel confident with the answers that I was giving people and the assistance um, but it was really serendipitous for me to find myself suddenly consulting with people in the area of career and employment it wasn't something that I ever knew existed as a career I remember I have vivid images of um, on the playground and classroom having you know, groups of especially girls around me talking and, and wanting to get answers to things. And I somehow was able to help people find answers on their own, but also provide them some information that, that would um, resolve the challenges they were having in, in relationships or in life. And again, even through high school, I don't think I ever officially understood that that was a function that I had in, in my peer group, but I was often in that role with friends, too, who were upset or having a difficult time, and I somehow had a reasonable voice through that for them. And most people bumble along. They don't have the opportunity to have either themselves or anyone else 
ever look at the string of stories and say, do you realize there are several core, core themes to who you are and what you're doing? And that what you've been doing no matter where you were, sometimes you called yourself one job and then you had another job and sometimes you weren't employed at all, but you were still that core of a person through all of that. And that's what I, that's part of what I really help people figure out is what's that core so that wherever they are, no matter what their job title is, no matter what they're being paid, no matter all of those things, if they understand that core and they're in alignment with that, that's when the real magic occurs for people. That's when the real, um, they really lock into who they are and they're, and they, and they are able to move forward with more confidence. Part of the reason why I've been using personality types in the form of Myers-Briggs for all these years also is because people ask those, those key questions that I help people with at different stages of life according to their type. And so there are some people that seemingly were born asking those questions. And there's others who, you know, I don't, they don't, it doesn't occur to them until they're in their late 50s to even consider, you know, who am I and what does it all mean? What's fascinating to me about personality type, because really no matter when the person asks the question, that's, that's the, often the core question that I'm working with people in is, who am I and what does it all mean? Even if that's not the thing that they thought they were coming for. People come for resumes, people come for job interviews, coaching, people come for, you know, life, all, they come for all kinds of things, but, but really what oftentimes what's bothering them is they can't quite make sense of who they are and what does it all mean. I'm always looking for that central meaning of, you know, who are you and what, what are, why are you bothering? Because really life is a bother mostly and if we don't know why we're bothering, then it's just a pain. If we have some reason for why we're bothering, then it actually helps us have some humor about the pain that we experience. Can you tell me a little more about personality types, what Myers-Briggs is all about and how it plays a role in our personal and professional lives. Um, Isabel Myers and Catherine Briggs developed the MBTI, which is the Myers-Briggs Tech Indicator. So a quick image to think about is if you think about a 16-room house, that there are 16 different types. We all have a favorite room in the house that we tend to gravitate toward. It's the place where we go to regenerate and find ourselves and find comfort again. And we move around the house all the time, partly because we have to, you know, we can't just live in one room. And sometimes we want to, sometimes we want to explore other rooms. But we always come back to our, our favorite native room to regenerate. And that's really what our type is. So the theory of personality type is that we are born with, our type is innate, it's born with us, and we remain that type our entire life. However, type is not static. As you mature, you develop your type and express it more fully over time. So in terms of extroverts becoming introverts, which is I hear from many adults who say, well, I used to be an extrovert now, but I think I'm an introvert. And many introverted adults say, oh my gosh, I think I'm an extrovert now. And here's what really happens is type of preferences between extroversion and introversion, for example, is based on that you have that preference and you express it 51% or more of the time. So you don't, it's not like 90%. But however, when you're, when you're a younger person, like when you're in your 20s and 30s and even younger, if you're an extrovert, you're probably doing that quite a bit of the time. You're probably, you're probably uh, interacting with your outer world and getting your energy from your outer world 60, 70, maybe even 80% of the time. 
So it feels like you're always an external. And then as we age, our lives get complex. We have children, we have marriages, we have careers, we do all kinds of amazing things in our lives. And, and our time, our external time gets um, more and more demanding. So if you're an extrovert, for example, you need some inward time. It's called balance. But you never balance it by being 50-50. You just learn to develop some skills to say, I'm okay with myself. Extroverts will find that even when they're, quote, by themselves, they're often engaged with something. So they're, they're physically engaged with something. They are watching something. They're playing with something. You know, they're, they're still interacting in the outer world by get to get energy with that. Cause that's really what extroversion is. It simply means interacting in the outer world to gain your energy. And so introverts who think that they've become extroverted, uh, what you'll find is that they have just developed really good social skills and they've become comfortable with themselves. If you really look at the balance of their time, they're still spending 51% or more of their time quite inward and, and enjoying themselves. And introverts are really having a really lovely time inside and many of them have great social skills. What words of wisdom would you say to yourself? <laughs> Don't take yourself so damn seriously. <laughs> I was a very intense and serious young person, and you know, just everything felt so serious all the time to me. And I just realized that there was a lot of anxiety in that process of, you know, it just, and it, it was most of it just wasn't worth it. I often look at my own immigration story, which is a pretty cool story to tell a combination of Agatha Christie thriller and Steven Spielberg sci-fi adventure. But the challenges we face today as immigrants are not new. Only our stories are. My guest is Jean-Luc Duchimé, an immigrant, a photographer, an artist, filmmaker, blogger, mentor, social activist, and personal friend. I was born in Rwanda, just a small country in the center or east center part of the African continent. I grew up in Kigali, which is the capital, and then um, had a normal childhood. My parents were working parents. I think in a young age, I was already a curious uh, kid, uh, curious mind. I had already a curious mind. I would push the boundaries. I would get into fights, or I would climb a tree and jump with uh, an umbrella to see if I can <laughs> be like, you know, <laughs> to be like, a modern day Mary Poppins, right? <laughs> I know, like skydive or something, you know. Um, so basically, um, I was one of those kids, high energy, troublesome, but in a good way, you know. I feel like I have that has carried me in my adulthood, you know, because I never settled for less. I'm always pushing. The war started when I was ten years old, and then it dragged until 1994 when um, it into a genocide. And um, that forces us to flee because the country was unstable. Uh, we end up in the Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, and back then it was called a year where we spent a um, few years before the Congolese war started, and then and start, that started the journey, basically that ended in Vermont in 2004. I was not very much aware of the political situation of the country. I mean, I was 10 years old, and, and I was mostly preoccupied by 
music and cinema than I was preoccupied by politics. We were supposed to go home on Friday, and the, the, pres the former president were plane was shot on Wednesday. So in the morning, we wake up, and then suddenly all these messages where they're making announcements saying the president, the, the president plane was shot, so um, we urge everybody to stay in, nobody moves. So basically, we're stuck at school for two months. No parents. Like, I mean, I was like, I was 13 years old. So imagine like 13 years old, 14 years old, 500 students all stuck in this school, no parents, no real information, rumors. And as a young person, I don't think any of us were aware of what was going on. So it was a very scary experience. My mom sent a message at the school that she was able to get out of uh, the capital, um, that she was, she was back to, the, to where she grew up. Uh, in the south, so I catch. I did catch a ride with a truck that was heading to where she was. And that's really what I saw the, the 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 scale of the killings because then I was sitting in the pickup truck for over 200 miles and then seeing like checkpoints and like I mean you could see uh, corpses on the side of the road and stuff, you know. But when you're 13 years old, there's something that doesn't really leave you. Uh, and it stays with you forever. Uh, when we got to Bukavu, DRCC, we really didn't live into a refugee camp per se, except my mom, who was working, she was teaching in a refugee camp. So sometimes I go stay with her, and it was rough. I mean, um, you have to wait for the food, and you have to line up and get water and stuff like that, uh, and it was not safe. A lot of people died from um, cholera and uh, and just other diseases like malaria because they didn't have uh, hospitals or people to help them. Um, yeah, we lost a um, um, couple um, family members on my mom's side and definitely a lot of close friends, a lot of close friends that died in Rwanda, in the genocide that died in the Congo. You kind of learn how to forget, uh, but at the same time it changes you because you learn to to shut down some part of your brain or shut down some part of your emotions so you don't miss people, you know? And it becomes difficult to operate in a world where people expect you to be normal, you know? To cry or to, to say, I miss you or something. But it's really hard, you know? I mean, it's a word I use, I miss someone, but the truth is it's like, you know, I can, get, I can move on with life without missing anyone because that's how I, I, I survive. The natural thing to do is to run away as much as possible and as far as, as possible. But for me, I chose to look back because I figured there's no way I'm going to move on with this weight unless I actually look back and then try to make sense of what happened. Uh, and that was my way of dealing with it. Um, but it's, uh, it's a very risky way because I don't know what I'm getting into and I don't know how far I can push it. And um, and, and my capacity to control my own emotions, you know. I mean, there are strong emotions. Like, fe like fear is one of the most paralyzing emotions, you know. And the guilt of like survival guilt and just keep thinking about why you survived and then why not someone else. And that's something that's hard to deal with. But uh, at the same time, it's, I see the positive side of it. I mean, there is like, so many, so much negativity around this, but also there's the positive side of it because it has taught me to appreciate life. You know, like I say, that the dead um, have taught me how to live. Uh, it's a reminder that uh, the fact that I'm alive 
uh, I have the responsibility to cherish the life I have and then really live it fully um, right. because I could be the one who died, you know, but that also comes with a lot of responsibility that can crush your soul. I learned that even the past changes, you know, as time goes by, um, because you may gain more clarity or you may gain more confusion. Um, so I've been learning to be, to stay open. I, I think that the, the most traumatic experience uh, moving to the U.S. is realizing that, you know, there's no need to survive. It's a big shift. I mean, when we moved, we didn't speak English at all, so we had to go through translators, and we are so grateful that we had uh, families, two families that became our friends. At the beginning, they were volunteers. So they took us around. They showed us stuff. They taught us how to use the bank system, transportation, and all this stuff. But then you start setting in, right? Uh, you start getting used to living here, and then suddenly it just hits you that there's no need to survive anymore which means that there's no need to stick to each other as a family, you know, as you survive together, you know, and you, de you, de you need each other. Uh, and suddenly you don't need to do that anymore, you know. But the problem is when people have survived together, even a small drift is a giant crack in the relationship. Mm. I mean, that comes with trauma, and that's what soldiers experience when they come from war because they cannot, they will never have the same relationship with their wives as the relationship they have with the, the fellow the fellow soldiers. Because there's something that happens in the time of war when it's a life and death situation. Like people next to each other, they kind of like make a commitment to each other that they will stick to each other, you know, no matter what. And right. a lot of families have stay apart, people divorce, kids moved away and parents died broken and sore, you know? And that's the hardest part. What words of wisdom would you say to yourself? I would say never stop pushing myself to understand what's going on in terms of like, like all these moving parts, like my political life, my spiritual life, my financial life, my relationships, my love life, and all this stuff. I feel like never stop pushing and educating myself in these, all these areas because I feel like the only way for me to to be who I am is to keep educating myself and that way I can I can make informed informed decisions and then actions. My guest today started a website development business out of his Middlebury College dorm in 1999. Little did he know that within a few short years he would be running a thriving web development and internet marketing company. Ted Adler is the founder and president of Union Street Media, and he also sits on the board of Spectrum Youth and Family Services, the Vermont Public Radio, and the Greater Burlington Industrial Corporation. Um, as a little kid, I used to really love collecting baseball cards, um, and uh, my parents basically were not particularly interested in funding my baseball card collection, and as a result, they um, said that if you wanted to get cards, you had to go out and earn the money. So I launched a lemonade stand um, right at the corner, um, right by the house that I grew up in, in Connecticut, and started employing my brothers and sisters. And uh, after a couple days of um, trashing the kitchen, my mother decided to shut the whole thing down. And my father, who um, also is an entrepreneur who started his own company and whose family um, 
whose father uh, was in a family business as well, um, uh, sort of said, no, this is, this, this is something, there's something here, right? Um, and so we're going to nurture and cultivate this. And so my dad basically said, all right, we're going to incorporate um, Adler Family Enterprises. And he sent us upstairs, and we all had to go get $2 out of our piggy bank. And he came down, and he gave us all a stock certificate that he wrote in his um, rather messy handwriting for 10 shares in Adler Family Enterprises. Um, and so uh, basically, he then sat down with us, and he sort of plotted out like how much the lemonade cost. and um, then every time there was a transaction, uh, you got paid. Uh, we then had to deduct our expenses, um, our lemonade expenses, against the uh, income we collected, uh, and which included tips. And at the end of the day, um, whatever was left was uh, profit, and it got paid out to all the shareholders as dividends. Wow. So within a couple of weeks, um, uh, one of my brothers figured that he could just uh, go hang out on the swing set and still collect his dividend check, and I decided that I wanted to buy him out. Um, and my, <laughs> to my dad, and I said, I want to buy his shares, and my father would block the trade. Um, so, so for that first summer, we sold a lot of lemonade, and that's how I, uh, how I sort of financed my baseball card collection and I guess kind of how the whole um, entrepreneurship thing started for me. Yeah, I mean, I've never really thought about entrepreneurship as being necessarily biological. I would say it's probably, like, strongly cultural. What entrepreneurship really revolves around is having a role model and access to mentorship. And one of the things that's great about America um, is that we love entrepreneurs, and we also accept failure, right? And we, like, reward failure. Better to have tried and not to succeed than, like, not to have tried at all. Right. Absolutely. So I think that um, culturally, like the United States is one of the best places to um, uh, start a company because of the sort of American culture around like innovation and um, uh, sort of uh, you know trying something out. And I think there are other parts of the world where that level of creativity and risk is not necessarily as rewarded. And certainly, if it results in failure. Um, that failure is looked down upon and punished. My business um, idea that led to Union Street Media started out with a website called midkid.com. And so if you go to Middlebury, you're sort of a midkid. And uh, what we did, and this was in the fall of 99, is I created a uh, five-page write-up on what I thought midkid would be. And at the time, like, the college website was terrible, right? And so what I wanted was a website that was really sort of, as we said, for students, by students. And it was a place where you could read course evaluations. And there was a local business directory of all the businesses in town. Um, and additionally, there was just information and links and stuff that was easy to find. And again, this was like the very, very early days of the internet, right? So I created, I, I wrote this five-page write-up. And I brought it to um, you know, one member of the administration. And I handed it to this guy. And, you know, I set up the meeting, like, you know, in advance and tried to, you know, sort of be very respectful, but we were going to pursue this either way. And what I was trying to figure out, and I knew so little about the Internet and how it worked, was whether or not there was a way the college could be involved in this. Like, maybe they could host the website, which, of course, I didn't even understand the concept of what hosting meant. Right? <laughs> so I go in and I hand the write-up to the person, and they basically, like, look at the first page, the second page, skim the third page, and then literally flick it on the desk, like flick of the wrist, like you'd throw a Frisbee. 
lands on the desk. The guy turns around, reaches back, and grabs the handbook. And he looks at me and he says, let me tell you why you can't do this. So he goes through all of these rules and regulations out of the college handbook, which were insane and completely irrelevant because, of course, it's the Internet, right? And yeah. It almost, to a certain extent, showed how little understanding he had at that point about how all of this stuff worked. And uh, so I walked out of there, and I called my dad, and he said, well, now you know why you want to be a businessman, not a bureaucrat. Um, and But I will say I was, like, really de dejected by that because I thought I had this, like, great idea for something that was really cool, and I brought it to a person with an influence in the college community who completely shot me down. And so on my way back, I was kind of going back to my dorm room, and I stopped off in the computer lab, and I ran into a guy named James Akombele Aldnega, who is a... a Amazing guy. He was actually born in Kenya. Came to the U.S. on the green card lotto. Um, I mean, his story, that is a story way more interesting and worthwhile listening to than every, anything I will ever tell anybody. But anyway, so I hand this to a Akombele, um, who was the vice president of the student body. And by the way, he only went by a Akombele in the same way that, like, you know, Madonna only goes by Madonna. He only had one name, right? So I hand this to a Akombele, and he looks through it, and he looks up with a little gleam in his eye, and he says, I think we can have some fun with this. So he went out and actually built the website, midkid.com, and then I was the one who was like marketing it and promoting it. And basically like what we did was we went to all of the small businesses in Middlebury and we said, hey, um, you know, we're building this website. There's all these students that are coming to it. Uh, if you would like, we'll give you a profile on like a page basically on the website where we'll talk about your business as if you're a senior talking to a freshman and to tell the story about why they should come shop at your pizza restaurant or your um, clothing store or anything like that. I graduated that February, um, and I took a week off, and like from there went right into um, you know building the company that has now become Union Street Media. Uh, and I tried, by the way, to get a company to come join a year later when he graduated, and after having spent four years in Vermont. <laughs> coming from Kenya, he said, I'm getting as far away from here as I possibly can, and ended up in Tampa, where the climate was much more disappointing. I've never felt like I woke up in the morning with some, like, entrepreneurial genius that, you know, saw a path and, you know, went on to create a company. Like, a lot of it was hard work, and a lot of it was timing, and absolutely there's a huge component of luck. And I think that that goes back to the saying that I said a couple minutes ago of, like, of making serendipity happen, right? right? And I think that that is a big part of what entrepreneurship is, is that um, you have to create the chance and create the opportunity for something to happen like, will, that, will be, that will make you successful, right? Um, and that involves like, a willingness to take risks. It involves a willingness to be creative. Um, you know, it involves a, a putting certain things in your life first over others, right? And, uh, you know, for me, like, you know, I was not going to accept the paradigm that, um, you know, the only way that you could have a compelling and interesting career in Vermont um, was to, like, go to medical school and become a doctor or to um, get a Ph.D. and become a professor, right? Uh, and I wasn't going to accept the paradigm that, the only way you could be successful is to live in like you know a metro area and commute in and out of a city every day uh, to some job that you didn't necessarily love, right? And so I said like I want to put myself in a place that I want to be, which is Vermont, but um, I'm going to like kind of craft and make my own rules here, which is uh, I believe that there is like this you know opportunity presented by the internet 
to create a company that does something cool and dynamic to have like a, a rewarding career. And, and, and I'd say probably the thing that is one of the most satisfying things to me about having created a company like Union Street Media is to provide that opportunity to other people. What words of wisdom would you say to yourself? I would say that um, from a business standpoint, one thing that I um, you know, heard early on from uh, Nord Brew was the importance of personality testing, and he was a really big fan of Myers-Briggs. Nord said to me, like, earlier in my career, I wish I had understood better kind of how people are hardwired and to put them into positions where they can be successful based on who they are. And um, I heard that at the time, but I didn't take any action on it. And in the last couple of years, um, with the Predictive Index, we've done a lot more of that. Um, and we've also been working with a, a, a great um, HR coach named Paul Toth to talk about how to create the kind of environment here where people feel safe, where they feel like they belong, where they feel like they can make a difference, and uh, that helps them feel like they can do more, right? And so I would say that really focusing on um, sort of who comes in and how they come in and um, all of the strengths that they bring to your organization and aligning those strengths with the proper role, um, really starting with who the person is, is one area that I wish I had done uh, and spent more focus on um, when, when, I, when I got to getting going with the industry. I am so delighted to be joined by Natalie Miller and Nathan Hartswick, owners and founders of the Vermont Comedy Club. Both of us grew up in the Northeast Kingdom, actually, but um, but I'll speak to my own experience first. I it was it's very rural. Uh, the Northeast Kingdom is very rural. Uh, it's a reef zone, which is a like a rural poverty zone. So you know, lots of lots of farmers, lots of like lower income families. We really had to, you know, my family. Um, we we couldn't get all the cool the cool new toys or anything. Um, we really like made entertainment for ourselves. Um, and my parents are definitely were definitely the kind of parents who encouraged us to play games and read and and find ways to entertain ourselves that would um, you know would make us smarter and make us be able to have that skill of entertaining ourselves um, without the need of anyone else or anything else. I did a lot of theater as a child, that I, and I loved it. I really wanted to be a performer. Um, and then I had kind of a traumatic experience. <laughs> yeah, so um, in third grade, we were reading a book, and we had to, like, write a play on the book. The book was The Island of the Blue Dolphins. And um, I got on stage, and I totally forgot my lines. And I remember in the moment, I made up a joke, and everyone laughed. And it was, like, the <laughs> best feeling of my life. And then I got off stage and my teacher like grabbed me by the shoulders and started screaming right in my face. Um, and I didn't get on stage in a theater way and again until my senior year of high school. And it wasn't until much later, like as an adult, that I looked back on it and realized like what a huge moment in my life that was. Having that first feeling of like getting a huge laugh from a group of people and then immediately afterwards being yelled at by an adult. Um, <laughs> it was really traumatizing. <laughs> we lived parallel existences. Uh, I grew up in the same uh, area as Natalie, and I'm a little bit older, so I um, we didn't really know each other as kids, but, but my mother 
ran a nonprofit theater organization for kids when I was growing up. So pretty much every summer of my life, um, I was in a musical. And uh, when I got older, I would I would you know direct workshops and things like that for kids. Uh, so it was a, it was a family nonprofit, and every and everyone volunteered, uh, including my my grandparents built the sets, and my aunts and uncles played in the orchestra pit, and my dad ran the lights. Um, and it was built in an old barn in the Northeast Kingdom. And uh, it was an incredible uh, program and, and an incredible way to experience the performing arts, um, you know, as a kid. And exactly what went into that, not just the performing piece, but also like what goes into, you know, producing a full-scale musical uh, every, every summer. My sister and I and a, and a handful of the other kids we were in theater with um, were big fans of Monty Python and Faulty uh, Towers and Saturday Night Live. And so um, we started doing comedy uh, probably in high school. I think my mother, uh, we had a little window at the theater of time where there weren't any shows going up. And my, my mother uh, pitched the idea that, why don't you guys all get together and write a sketch comedy show and put it up yourselves? Um, I think she was just looking for something for us to do to get us out of her hair. Uh, but it, it worked. And, you know, we, we actually did that first summer, we did four sketch comedy shows um, two weeks apart. So we would take a week and write it, and then we would take a week and rehearse it and find all the props and costumes and stuff, and then we would put it up for uh, an audience of family and friends. Wow. And and we did that over the course of a summer, and it was a real real crash course in how hard it was to create um, live comedy, especially given that we were just high school kids. We had a whole family full of entrepreneurs and doers and people who, who took the creative pursuit and the skills that they had and turned it into the way they paid their rent. Um, and so it was always like an example presented to me that you can do whatever you want to do. Um, if you want to do something creative, then you just have to, you know, you may have to figure out the way you're going to make a living at that. Um, no one's going to hand you a paycheck for it. A bunch of my teachers in college had this mantra that if you're going out for auditions and you're not getting the part, you need to create work for yourself. And that's the way that you get on stage and you are sure that you're playing parts that you want to play. Um, you know, if you, if you aren't getting cast in the roles you want, then produce your own show or write your own show or do, you know, create the work for yourself. And so I think that's, that's why I, I think I was inspired to do what we're doing. Um, because there wasn't like, you know, there was, there was barely a comedy. There, there were maybe five stand-up comedians who did a show once a year in the entire state when we started doing comedy, you know, eight years ago. Absolutely. And, um, and so we, but we wanted to do it more. And the more we did it, the more we wanted to do it. And so we just kept creating opportunities for ourselves to do it. And I think if you have that mindset of, I'm not going to wait around for someone to hand me an opportunity, I'm going to create an opportunity for myself, um, you're going to get a lot farther, a lot faster. Yeah, so tell me then about uh, the space you have today, the Armory space. The first week we were dating, we were like, uh, we were walking one of his friend's dogs and we walked the dog by that space and looked in the windows and said, we would love to put a theater in there one day. Um, and that, you know, that was probably nine years ago, um, way before we had any idea of what we were going to do. Yeah, the second we walked in there, we were, it was, you know, almost 6,000 square feet of empty space with no poles in the way, no sightline restrictions. It was all one big empty space dirt pit, and it, it, we just looked around and looked at each other and said, well, this is it. Yeah, this, this, is, this is it. This, this is, is exactly one. what we need. We have been working uh, 80 to 90 hour weeks uh, <laughs> for the last, the club opened in November, 
Um, but that probably started a good year before the club. We're taking a real vacation, not a business vacation. We've taken a number of business trips, um, but we're taking a real vacation for the first time in October. But it comes down to a lot of, of this idea that, you know, we don't come from families that have money. Uh, in so many of those meetings with, with banks and investors, um, the, the question just came up, well, can't you just ask, can't you just ask your parents for, for money to get this off the ground? And it's like, uh, no, no, can't do that. But I know, like, that's, but that's not the reality for us. So, you know, we're, we're putting the sweat equity in. And not just that, but, you know, when we opened this business, there's, there really was, there is not anyone else who knows that side of the comedy industry in Vermont. Short of hiring someone from New York to come up, you know, we have to train people in, like, all of the information on how to produce comedy shows and how to draw audiences to comedy shows and stuff is is in our heads because we have been doing it together for the last, you know, seven years. And so we, we have to take the time to, to train other people in how to, to do that. What words of wisdom would you say to yourself and why? Stop being so afraid of everything all the time and just try stuff. I was very, very timid, had a lot of anxiety, and I think fear holds held me back a lot. It holds a lot of people back. So I think just saying, just just have fun and try stuff. Nothing bad is going to happen. Mm-hmm. I would probably say, uh, just slow down and be patient. Because I have that big picture uh, idea of everything, I'm oftentimes I I see what I what I want to build and. The reality is it's going to take years uh, to get there, and it's going to take a lot of work. And it's okay to, to just take a breath and slow down and be a little patient about it and not be so, um, you know, we have to get this done now, 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 now. And it, it creates a lot of, it, it has created a lot of stress in my life trying to get things to happen quicker than they physically can. So I think I would just tell my younger self to calm the hell down. I talked to Pastor Mike Creasel, the head pastor of Community Bible Church, about being a pastor and the challenges of Christianity in the least church state in the country. Uh, I'm a Vermonter. Uh, I was born in Vermont, raised in Vermont, uh, married my high school sweetheart. And so uh, uh, Vermont life has been very familiar to me. Um, basically, I was raised Catholic. Uh, this is a very big Catholic community, uh, especially back here. I'm going back to 1950 now when I was born. Uh, my father didn't go to church. My mother basically raised us in church. And uh, basically what church became to me as I grew into my teen years, uh, it became uh, what I guess I've distinguished between what it means to have religion and what it means to be in a relationship. And so basically the last time I went to, the last time I went to church was the day I got married. Uh, and that was at the age of 21. And so, uh, I got married and we didn't, we didn't have any need for church. And then all of a sudden through a series of circumstances and through members of my family, uh, uh basically I became part of what was known as the Jesus movement. 
and uh, back in the 60s and 70s, all these hippies are, that were turned off to establishment, were turned off to religion, were turned off to church, began to find out what it meant to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And uh, it just opened my eyes to what it means to, to know God personally, to have God know you personally, and to enter into that kind of a relationship that you just uh, you build it out of intimacy uh, in His Word. And not just of what I would call religion, just going through motions. And I guess basically that's what I had done probably the uh, most of my life up until that time, is just gone through the motions of what religion is about. So what I mean by religion and relationship is uh, I went to church, you know, I put my quarter in the offering bucket, uh, but on Monday it didn't mean anything to me. I, was, I wasn't God-conscious throughout the week. I wasn't aware that God uh, was in my surroundings. It was just church, religion, was something you do on Sunday, and then that's it. Whether it carries into your week, that it doesn't really matter at all. And so I didn't build my values. I didn't build my life around the fact that God is constant in my life. So that's what relationship came became with me. The first thing that happened, I began to see the lives of people that I knew, like in my family, my sisters, for example, uh, they became followers of Jesus, and I began to see their lives change. You know, the Bible was never anything they talked about. All of a sudden, they were excited about reading the Bible. They were excited about Bible studies. They were excited about prayer. They became excited about church. And although I, I wasn't interested, I was watching. And then my wife became a uh, a born-again follower of Jesus. And so I began to take more notice. Even though I stayed away from it, I was uh, I didn't want anything to do with it. Uh, I, I didn't care. But all of a sudden, you know, people began to show up in my life that I realized that something was different about them. And so through a series of events like that, I did attend, uh, I did attend a Bible study, and I was given the opportunity uh, to become a follower of Jesus, to open my heart up to Him, to come to that place of realizing what He had done for me and confessing and repenting of my sins. And and uh, and I did it. I, I took that step. And uh, Tino's life has never been the same since. And that was over 40 years ago. Uh, within probably a year, I became a Sunday school teacher. I was teaching uh, nine, ten, and eleven-year-olds uh, doing a Bible study on Sunday mornings for them. Uh, then I became part of the bus ministry. We had we had buses that would go out every week and pick up kids in all over the, all over Chittenden County, especially down into Burlington and into Winooski. In two years, I became a deacon. A deacon is one of the leaders of the church that helps and comes alongside the pastor in help in helping him run the church. So I was a deacon for eight years. And then after eight years, uh, I became the assistant pastor. The person who was the senior pastor at that time uh, brought me onto his staff, so I became a senior, uh, an assistant pastor for about three years. And then in 1989, the senior pastor left, and I decided to candidate, and I became the uh, the pastor of the church in 1989, and have been so uh, ever since. Right. I probably served in just about every ministry in the church throughout the course of my Christianity. I've, I've even been the janitor at one time. <laughs> I used to clean the church. Uh, but I, I wanted, I gave my heart to God and I just said, 
God, whatever you can do with this life, if you can do anything with me, please, I give it to you. My, my goal in life was to open a chain of gas stations. That's what I oh, wanted. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I, was, I love cars. I love working on cars. Uh, and so I, uh, that was my goal. But uh, <laughs> God had a different plan. According to a Gallup poll and also the Pew Research Center, Vermont is one of the least religious states in the country. No, it is the least, not one of them. The <laughs> okay, then. So wouldn't you rather be pastoring a church in Alabama or Tennessee? I've been to India three times. I've been to Africa. My wife has been on missions trips, uh, many in my church. But I can't think of a better place to bring the gospel than the least church state in the country, the state of Vermont. I love my state. And and so uh, uh, the goal of the gospel is to take it where uh, it's not welcome, <laughs> where people aren't interested. And so uh, I can't think of a I can't think of a more wonderful place I'd rather preach the gospel and bring the message, the good news of Jesus Christ, than in the state of Vermont. I think the answer kind of starts out with where you started this whole conversation, uh, when you kind of were saying that. You know, people in America uh, follow the American dream. You know, you can live in America and not need God. You can prosper and not need God. And I think that mindset, especially in the Northeast, has just kind of set in over the years. I'll be honest with you, the biggest reason for that is the church. I think the church over the years has become more irrelevant. we We've stayed inside of our walls way too long. We, we call it a come-to church. We sit here in our four walls and we wait for people to come to us. And I think over the years that has backfired on the church. I think, I think what the church in many cases has done wrong is we start judging the world. Jesus never judged the world. <laughs> Okay, Jesus took on the sins of the world. So what we do is we take people, we take people who have no interest in the Bible, have no interest in God, have no interest in becoming a follower of Jesus, and we start judging them and telling them how they should live and telling them everything that they're doing wrong. God didn't call us to do that. God called us to love the world, to minister to the world. You know, throughout the years, throughout our history, we've tried to make really real strides in reaching out to our community. For example, we started we started the Burlington Emergency Shelter. Oh, really? We, we started the first Christian shelter uh, in Vermont. We started a bus ministry. We helped start the first Teen Challenge, which is actually the number one drug and alcohol uh, rehab, uh, has one of the greatest success rates, not only in the country, but also in the world. We helped start the first one in the state of, in the state of Vermont. We have an extensive prison ministry. We've been going into the prisons for over 25 years. Uh, I'm sure you probably know this, but we connected with the Vermont Refugee Resettlement Program. So every refugee family that comes into this area, into the Burlington area, into Chittenden County, we give them a packet. And the packet has uh, bus cards in it. It has food cards. It has stamps. It has telephone cards, uh, brochures, just just 
just ways of helping people get acclimated into our community. So we have what we call Jay's Christmas Party. Every Christmas, we put on a free Christmas party for people, for kids in our area. We give them a free gift. We have animals and costumes, and we just throw a big Christmas party. We turn our sanctuary into Santa's village. You know, we just want to love our community. We just want to show people that Christians care. What words of wisdom would you say to yourself? I probably would have would have told myself that. God was real much earlier than I did. I'm sorry I wasn't serving God throughout my teen years and throughout my earlier years. Get to know him sooner. Uh, you won't regret it. That would be the wisdom I would give myself. In tribute to a new year and resolution making, I talked to Kerry Fantelli, a yoga instructor, health practitioner, dancer, writer, and blogger on the website Badass Mamas about yoga and how her life has been changed by the practice of yoga. I was the youngest of five girls in my family. There was just girls, no, no boys in our household. And my dad was the ultimate feminist. Basically, we didn't delineate chores between the boys do this, the girls do that. We did it all. So from a very young age, that was the message that I kind of lived by was you do it all. And being the youngest, when I started going to school and I started kind of following in my sister's footsteps, because we all had the same teachers a lot of the time, the statement would always be, oh, you're Julie, Jennifer, Jeannie, Carla's sister, which pretty much meant you're going to be a straight A good, quote unquote, student. And really got sick of that and so I decided I didn't want to be like my sisters and so I became known as a as, as a troublemaker basically. So I was a, a rebellious kid and I think that that followed me deeply into childhood. Both of those things, the rebelliousness and the I can and don't have a choice to do everything kind of mantra. I first started out doing yoga because of a because of a back injury and it's a, it's actually a very funny story so i injured my back dancing and dealt with it for a year and i i just kept dancing and i kept working and i kept doing all the things that i was normally doing with pain and in pain and it was pretty awful i'm stubborn and i didn't go seek help and everyone in the dance community kept telling me, oh, Carrie, do yoga. It'll really help. And Of course, I was the opposite of doing what everyone told me to do. And so I didn't listen, didn't listen, didn't listen, and just dealt with pain. And it went on for about a year. It was pretty bad. And I was in Putney, Vermont at a dance conference. And we ended up crashing and staying on this guy's land. And it was the funniest situation because... We go to this gentleman's land. I've never met him before in my life. And he had set up this beautiful campsite. It was lovely. We had finished our dance classes for the evening. And we had gotten directions to his house. And we get there. And he's sitting there around this campfire. And we all go and we introduce ourselves. And basically, he was a little intoxicated. And, and um, so he was pretty drunk, actually. And I introduced myself and, and was staring into the fire. And he looks across the fire and he says to me you've got to do yoga and he 
fell out of his chair and passed out, literally. And I thought, okay, the universe, God, the universe, whatever you want to call this divine energy coming through to tell someone that is a stranger. And a, it, it was just the most amazing experience. And so from that moment on, I, I, I listened and I said, okay, all right, I get it. I've been hit in the head long enough with this yoga recommendation. I will go home and I will do it. The practice of yoga does start out as physical for a lot of people. And with time, the the layers start to go deeper and it becomes more emotional. And you start to really recognize places in your body that haven't gotten attention. And there's certain places in our in our own bodies that require opening or require release. And in those releases and openings, it's it's astounding how emotions are kind of trapped in those spots. And so over time, it becomes this shift of energy. It's very it's magical. It's like this energetic shift of what we kind of show to the world every day and then who we really are. And I feel like getting yourself closer to your true self and who you really truly are at your heart of heart is what keeps me going back to my mat because it does continue to deepen the more I practice and the longer I've I've been working through my yoga on my mat and my yoga off my mat. It's it's a beautiful process and so it does become very deep, emotional and you could use the word spiritual and I do believe that I've had moments where it's felt extremely spiritual for me as far as the practice of yoga and, and what it's offered and awarded to me as, as I grow. It's not so much physical anymore. A lot of, a lot of people will say, oh, I, I can't, I can't sit and meditate. I'm too anxious. And, you know, it's, and, or people will say like the same kind of theme about like, oh, I can't do yoga. I'm not flexible. And that's like saying that you're too dirty to take a bath. Like, I'm too stinky. I'm not going to shower. I smell. I'm not going to shower. It's like the same thing. So it's like if your mind is going a mile a minute or if your body is really hurting or inflexible, then you need meditation and, and you do need yoga. And it's not, it, nothing is ever perfect. Oh, I suck at meditation. I am the worst. I am like the absolute worst meditator. But I do it every day because I know it's helping me. What words of wisdom would you say to yourself and why? Don't buy the Honda Prelude. It's a piece of <laughs> shit. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, God, Tino. I mean, there are so many younger selves I would like to go back and and I would I would go back to my nine-year-old self and say, you don't have to fight a war that isn't yours. Put your weapons down. You don't need them. And keep your heart open, no matter what. I welcome to the show serial entrepreneur and business executive, Rich Tarrant. Rich Tarrant is most known as the co-founder and CEO of MyWebGrocer and the son of another incredible entrepreneur, Rich Terrence Sr., the founder of IDX, now known as GE Healthcare. I grew up here in Burlington, Vermont. I went to uh, 
Christ the King grade school, Rice High School, and then the University of Vermont. Uh, but you know, it was probably like a lot of families. My, my parents both worked. Uh, my mother was a teacher for a while. My father was uh, starting a company. He worked for IBM and then started his own company. Um, you know, there was the normal, probably, family things of, you know, uh, times are tight for a while. There was, there was no guarantee that my father's company would be successful. Clearly, it's, that's not a given when you start an, uh, uh, a venture. When we were sitting at the dining room table, we were exposed to um, my father building his business. And, and just by definition, you're, you're going to pick up stories, uh, elements of that, the good and the bad. Um, it's a terrific resource to ask questions about. But, you know, when we got older, you know, in the in the uh, you know late grade school, high school years, we have a more understanding of things. You can ask questions and have dialogues about. Well, tell me about that problem and how are you going to handle that? And where's that opportunity? Interestingly enough, we never really got into the gory details of what his business did. I mean, there were many years where where. I was, it was a little bit embarrassing because I didn't know specifically, yeah, it was software for hospitals, what I was, doctors and hospitals, that's what I'd be my answer. Clearly, we find in that, but it wasn't imperative that, that we knew any of that. Um, the valuable elements came in conversations about problems because problems and challenges in business, regardless of the industry, had some pattern recognition to them. Personnel problems, competitive pressures and problems, expansion growth problems. I mean, it's all, you know, sure there's different verticals and different sectors and different business lines and different types of people, but but they really have an undercurrent that's the same. So there would be conversations about that. I will tell people that I learned more at the dining room table uh, than I did in college about business. That's just being fortunate enough to have someone who was blazing a unique trail that, that gave me exposure to things I would never have gotten exposed to in, in, in college. So when you have an idea, um, whether it's a new company or new product or even just a new feature, are you an instinctive kind of uh, person or do you rely on data? I'm not really a research every angle of an idea. It's, it's more what I try and do is I try and poke holes in the business idea. Why won't this work? The first thing I do on any business idea is why won't this work? And I look for fundamental flaws uh, systematic flaws in a business model. Uh, and if I find any of those, then I cast it aside and say, I, that won't work, or I can't make that work. Um, uh, once I've gone through that for a while and I can't seem to find a flaw, then I start getting into the, the more, more detailed uh, elements of like, well, how would this business be built? What would you need to do to make this successful? What are the competitive threats or pressures or opportunities within a marketplace? Um, and, and there's an element of that exercise that gets done. Just you know, you, you may have a great idea that 25 others have already thought of, and you don't have a unique twist on it. You're not going to go very far. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, but once that exercise has sort of gone through, then you sort of put together models, and then at some point you just jump in because you could do uh, analysis paralysis. I've seen that happen, and that's not how I operate. It's it's you know what the foundations look good. Seems like a good idea. It can be executed. Here's some of the key tenants to go ahead and do that. Jump in and start doing it. You're going to adjust and, and make alterations along the way anyway. Trying to figure them all out ahead of time is a waste of time, in my opinion, because it's not possible. Right. Uh, business is fluid. Industries are fluid, and, and you have to be able to be. Uh, you have to adapt. Here's what I uh, what I here's what I tell people 
uh, and you alluded to it, 100%, 110% vested. It's way more than 110%. And, and this is the thing that, that I think um, people have to recognize that you cannot do something like this part of the way. You're either all in or you're not. The gentleman wanted to start talking about his business idea. And I stopped him. And I said, I don't want to hear your business idea. And he was really surprised. He's like, well, what do you mean? I thought that's what we were here for. I said, no. We're, we're, what I want to know from you is why you want to do it. Tell me the why. Don't even tell me the idea. You're smarter in your field than I will ever be. I have no visibility into whether your idea is good or not. It's not the area that I operate. I said, but I want to know why you want to do it. And he sort of sat. He said, you know, no one's asked me that question before. I said, well, good. Then, then I'll get a, hopefully a real good answer. <laughs> and, and, uh, and he said, well, because I think it'll be a good idea. I said, that's not a why. So why do you want to do it? And he didn't have an answer. He called me back two weeks later, and he said, Rich, you know what? I thought about what you said, and I'm not going to do this business. And I said, okay, well, tell me why that is. He said, because I didn't have a good reason why I was doing it. Hmm. He said, I got, a great, I got a great profession and a great career. I got, I got you know, the, the material things that I need. Um, I, uh, I enjoy my work, my current work. I get to spend time with my family. We get to go on vacations. We get to do all these great things. He's like, I just don't know that it would be worth it. And I said, okay, great decision. There's a couple of elements, I think, that starts you down this path. One of them uh, is naivete. And, and I say that in, in, in an endearing way, right? Um, and, and here's what I mean by that. If I knew all of the things that I would have had to have done to get this business on solid footing, and the growth trajectory that it's on and all that stuff. In other words, the, you know, the ghost of Christmas past, the Christmas carol where, <laughs> yeah. you know, gets dragged around by the ghost and says, here's what, you know, if someone did that or if you could do that as an entrepreneur before you start down the path, you wouldn't go down the path. You, you wouldn't. You would, you would say, oh, my God, I have to do all of that? I have to sacrifice family time and kid time and travel excessively and not get paid for years? And I have to do all of that? And then I still may not have something that is valuable and worthwhile and productive. You wouldn't do it, right? Because nobody would, no one would take that gamble. But the naivety that you have, particularly when you're younger and you don't have a bunch of the, you know, responsibilities of family and the like, you say, you know what, I can do this. Um, but then what happens is this: then you get on this path, and like you had said. Uh, and then it starts growing and it starts working. And then there's always more challenges to make it bigger and expand the business lines. And then you have people who who, who put their confidence in you, right? And now mm -hmm. it's coming to and they're making uh, a great living and a great career. Or their stock is worth well, whatever it might be. And then you have a, a sort of a responsibility to the families and the employees and the, the community and all the other things that uh, that that spring up because of um, uh, your success and uh, and you enjoy it. And if you don't enjoy it, you're not going to be able to hang with it anyway. You know, people have asked me, well, what's your, what's your fear? Like, what's your biggest fear? You know, it's a sort of a cliche question, but it has some merit. And my answer to people is, my biggest fear is that we spent 17 years putting ourselves in this great position. We'd better take advantage of it. Uh, it would be a real shame to not take advantage of the position that we've collectively put ourselves in over so much time and effort. 
what words of wisdom would you say to yourself and why? I would probably I would probably go back and tell myself uh, to not worry so much without without losing the edge of the effort because sometimes the worry drives you to the effort that gets you the return. I would say keep up the effort, but don't stress out with the worry so much. Things have a way of working out. So I would probably encourage that. Now, here's the other thing, Charles. I would probably be unsuccessful taking my own advice, but uh, that is what I would tell myself. Hey, listener, just one more quick thing. Do you enjoy following the show or were there moments that you found inspiring or instructive? Can you think of anyone, a friend, coworker, or a family member who might appreciate this moment? If so, take a second to share the podcast with them. Tell them about it. Direct them to the podcast Facebook page by just searching for On the Shoulders of Giants podcast in the Facebook search field. Or direct them to my website, tcrutanira.com. Or lastly, just show them how to subscribe in iTunes or wherever you get your podcast feed. Because we all grow when good ideas and messages are shared.